And as this practice deepens, and you recognize that you are one of the beings in that circle, as well as the heart that is sending that light forth, you enter more and more deeply into the universe of compassion. And in that universe, the heart is freed to love as it must love. Amazing ones, welcome to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. I'm your host, Jackie Dabrinska, and you all, you are the Ramdas Satsang, a community of people who are bent towards expanding consciousness and love and service and living on those many planes of consciousness. Thank you for tuning in. This is episode 231 The Universe of Compassion. And doesn't that sound nice, to consciously live and take refuge in a universe of compassion, compassion for ourselves, for each other, for the world. And hopefully we'll taste a little bit of that a little later in this episode. So today, this is a Q&A session from a 1992 Dharma talk. And in it, Ramdas explores um, lots of things, including various kinds of death and being okay with all of them. He talks about the paradox of that age-old question, do we have free will or not? Um, He also tells us about relaxing, especially around our habitual striving, even for enlightenment. Um, He talks about the root of fear and how to work with it and the essence of faith. And also becoming vulnerable And of course, our constant favorites, Uh, he talks about work and love and our sense of self. The session ends with Ramdas leading a really lovely metta meditation or a loving kindness meditation. So I really encourage you to sit back and get comfortable for this episode. And if you're driving or otherwise engaged, you know, listen to the content now, really you know, drink it in, Um, but come back again a little later when you have time and space to do the practice. And just imagine, you know, there are hundreds, if not thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are tuning into this. And we're doing this practice together, even if it's through time and space. And so you can tap into that. And it's really beautiful when we combine our efforts. So really encourage you to, to do the practice. And we really hope that you're nourished by it, not just the practice, but by the teachings that are included here. Um, as always, whatever good may come from it, may it benefit all of us in our daily lives and ripple out into the world for the benefit of all beings. So here we are, Ramdas, here and now. Namaste and blessings. Uh, if you raise your hand when you have a question, and then I'll repeat the questions so that everybody can hear it if, if you don't hear it. Questions. The question is, does it matter when you're dying if you are, well, if you are drugged and a little bit unconscious? Um, 
each person is actually is on their own unique journey. And to appreciate the different stages people are at without judging them comes from seeing that the whole thing is like a big circle. So that some people are at the stage of the circle where when they die, they die one way. Others, when they die, die another way. Like a Tibetan Lama, you know, might send out a postcard saying, next Tuesday at 2, I'm leaving my body, won't you come by for tea, you know? Then he turns around three times, sits and leaves. And somebody else may um, be in pain that they can't tolerate, and they, uh, they take chemicals which, uh, which uh, make them unconscious at that process. Each, there are no errors in the system. That's the thing I want to convey, and that's a hard one to convey to people because they say, oh, he died wrong or she died wrong, but that isn't true. There's not even a possibility of that. Where you're at is where you're at. So you get to listen to hear what that process is at that moment because as people die, they die. I mean, when you look at the society, you're looking at a cross-section in an evolutionary sense all the way from people who are very young spiritually, who are going to get caught in every incarnation for a long time, to very old beings who see incarnation as dream. And that's not better or worse because it's a circle. I mean, everybody's somewhere on that circle all the time. It's the one coming into the many, going into the one, coming into the many. So there's no better or worse. So you stop having judgments, you just get to appreciate which way it happens. Questions? Yeah. She said, the age-old question, choice or no choice? Where are you seeing it? Like free will, you mean? This is the one that always gets me into trouble. <laughs> if you... <laughs> no, I have to know everything. You've got to understand. <laughs> the psychological experience of an individual within an incarnation is that they have choice and that they have some free will. If you were to stand back, Father, and look at the lawful nature of the phenomena, including thought, and all of it, you'd see everything is lawfully interrelated, and at that level, you would see that there is not really free choice. It all was karmically inevitable. So then you'd say, yes, you have free will. No, you don't have free will, and they're both true. He's asking about uh, the experience of craving light when he meditates. And he's wondering about different systems which focus in different aspects of coloration or light or darkness and light and so on. Um, the, um, the quality of light that you rest in in deep meditation practice is a light that isn't the polar opposite of darkness. It's a light that embraces darkness. So it's neither bright nor not. It's just, it's the light. It's, okay. It's an interesting one. Yes. She said, once the awakening starts and you realize you have to go through the grieving process, what in terms of my life was an earl the earliest experience I remember of the beginning of that grieving process? I can't bring a specific memory to mind. What I can begin, what I can remember is a shifting in the way in which I was around 
suffering. Um, the, the shift to the point where suffering became um, something to be embraced rather than to be defended against. And um, you know, I can give you hundreds, of, I mean, there are examples pouring through my mind. When you say, what is the earliest one? I can't get hold of that one particularly. Um, I mean, in the, in the early 80s, I, I went to uh, Guatemala and was with these Mayan women who had watched their fathers and sons be murdered before their eyes. And just looking in their eyes and something pulled itself out of me. I mean, there was just such a, a grieving with them for what they had. And they were yet so clear in the presence of what it was that they were, what they represented. Um, I can remember earlier, way back, when the pain of it all, like my mother's death, when I had taken acid, but I hadn't really integrated much, when my, my mother's death around 1966, I remember pushing away the whole thing because it was just too painful for me. I couldn't handle it. And then it was interesting that in the late 70s, uh, I'm sorry, late 80s, middle 80s, when my stepmother died, I had the chance to go through the whole process in a way that I couldn't go through with my mother at the time. And she, I mean, she, uh, it was just incredible. She just... Her death was so far out, I mean, just anecdotally, because I got so open with her. We'd lie in bed holding each other, and just she was so open to the living spirit. And she was a, um, she was English Scottish. She had been um, perhaps, um, I don't know, Presbyterian, maybe, I'm not sure. And uh, then when she married my father, she converted to Judaism. And she was a good, a good, tough lady. I liked her a lot. And, but she wasn't trained in spiritual things. But when she was dying, the last thing that happened was she said to me, Richard, sit me up. You know? And she's like going in and out of consciousness. She says, sit me, sit me up. And so I put her legs over the bed and I sat her up and I had to hold her because she'd fall over. So I put one hand against her back and one hand against her heart. And her head kept falling to the side, so I put my head against her head. And then she just sat there straight up, and she took three breaths and then didn't breathe anymore. And if you read in the Tibetan literature, this is the way very old Tibetan monks die. They sit straight, take three breaths, send it out the top of their head and go. She didn't know any of that. Or did she? <laughs> Question, sir. He's asking about uh, Aikido and the philosophy underlying Aikido. I studied Aikido for a while and stopped when I separated my shoulder because of an ego trip in throwing somebody, as you can well understand how that could happen. It's not being pure enough to be clear. And the point he makes is uh, absolutely beautiful about... Uh, the Aikido process being one of harmonizing oneself with, an, with the force around one, with the person you're opposed to. So it's not really opposition, so that it's, it's a way in which the energy gets redirected. I did a book with Paul Gorman in 1985 called How Can I Help? 
And there's a story in that about a Japanese monk that is the essence of that process. And I, if you don't know it, I guess you do know it, but I recommend it to you. It's done by a great Aikido master. Yeah. Do I have a personal motto or a personal truth? Something that sums me up, did you say? <laughs> Something, sum it all up in a... In a <laughs> uh, I'll tell you, uh, what I've been doing for probably 20, 25 years is using uh, this thing, which is really variously called worry beads or a mala or a rosary or whatever. And um, this process is one of using a word that reminds you that it isn't all as real as you think it is, right? And, um, but the word is usually a name of God, and I keep changing the names all the time because God has no name. So I will do it through all different religious traditions and so on. And often when I'm talking to you, I get so fascinated with what I'm saying that it all turns real, and then I feel my finger on the bead and the whole thing shifts gears again. So I would say that I don't have a word I use or a phrase. I continuously are using just something to remind me, okay? Like Ram or Wow or Ah or Yes. Yes. Calling somebody back through communication after they've died. When you've entered into love, real love with another human being, the, uh, the power of that um, leads your personality to be very attached to that because they're your connection to that feeling of love. So that when they die, the loss is felt very intensely. The grieving is very intense and you try to hold and grab the person that you knew. Um, my suspicion is that from the other point of view, Um, I'm talking uh, from a karmic point of view. It was the person's karma that they were involved with, with you, and so after they leave their body, often they stay in a certain space in order to be there for you in a certain way. Um, once a grieving process, which is trying to recreate a hold or grab or bring back, runs its course, and it sometimes takes years to run its course there start to be moments where there's a little space in the whole situation where you've opened sufficiently to the grief to be quiet in a moment and you feel the strange sense of the, the you're back in the love, in the presence of the whole thing again. Not in the presence of the person, but in the presence of what the essence was that you had together. And it takes the quietness that comes after the grieving, when the grieving quiets down enough, because the grieving is so loud all the time of I'm busy missing the person, I want them the way they were, that you don't get often quiet enough to hear that the thing that was the essence of it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still right there all the time. And once you tune in on that, then the person is free to do whatever they need to do. They can go on. But 
understanding that there really isn't time on other planes in the way there is here. So it's not a big deal for somebody to hang around. I mean, it's not like you're holding them back to do it. I think you should express your truth of grieving. Your truth is I want them back. Your truth is I want to connect with them. I want to talk with them. I want them to talk back to me. I want to have their picture. I want to think about them all the time. You keep letting it run and letting it run and letting it run until it keeps changing because it's a living relationship. And when it keeps changing, it comes into something that has nothing to do with change. And that, then you've got what you wanted, but you don't have it the way you thought you were going to have it. Is that dealing with your question? But I don't think there's any harm involved in it. When he deals with higher consciousness, he can't seem to get out of his own way. Does that ever happen? Is that what you said? Do we ever get over that? No. <laughs> I'll tell you, uh, I remember when I was with, um, uh, I was teaching at Naropa Institute the first year it started, and I was teaching with this wild man named Trungpa Rinpoche who was a Tibetan Lama, and one day I was in uh, having an interview with him because he was also a wonderful teacher, and, and he said, well, Ramdas, you should be doing this particular kind of, of yoga meditation now. And he said, why don't we try it? And so, well, he said, why don't we do it together? So we sat there looking at each other and started to do this meditation, and after about 20 seconds, he said, Ramdas, are you trying? I said, yes, I'm trying. He said, no, Ramdas, don't try, just do it. And I saw that who it was that wanted to get enlightened was just there. Right? Now, at first, I've gotten, when that's happened, I used to get very irritated with myself. Now I have much, a much more relaxed feeling because I no longer know whether I'm going to be enlightened in this life or 10,000 births down the way. And what's furthermore, I don't care because I'm doing what I'm doing and the process is the product. And I'm really relaxing into, I, it's interesting, I've said this many times, but it just is so vividly an expression. In all the years I've been doing spiritual practices, I haven't gotten rid of one of my neuroses. Not one of them. The only thing that's happened is where they were originally these monsters that used to possess me. Now they're these little schmooze that I invite in for tea, you know? <laughs> now they're my style, you know? I mean, they're, I'm just neurotically stylish, that's all, instead of like, it's a big thing. So it just changed its meaning, but the, I was still in my own way, but now it became how charming. Instead of, oh God, there I am again, you know? Is that dealing with, it's just a, a perceptual shift where you relax a little bit. Yes. She's asking about fear and how we work with it. I didn't quite get the relation between me being more human and your fear, but okay. I, maybe I'm more available to you because of my sickness. <laughs> fear is, um, is the, the deepest um, fear has to do, that arises out of the, the sense of separateness, the sense of being uh, yourself, being somebody. That that being, that root fear, 
you're very vulnerable under those conditions because there are huge forces all around you. Forces of love, of hate, of violence, of economic, everything, all of it around you. So that to the extent you're identified with your separateness, it is inevitable that there will be fear. And it'll be fear of this and that, and fear of this, fear that something, fear of hurt, fear of this, fear of that. My suggestion is that instead of responding to each fear specifically, you develop, you work on the other part of you, which is the feeling of your connectedness to all things. And let the fear manifest as it manifests. And then you cultivate an ability to just notice it without judging it. The minute you judge it as a, as a failure on your part or something wrong, it is a natural part of your separateness. It's built in. We all have that. Some of us are obsessed by it because our minds focus around it and create around it. But the answer to me is not to try to push away the fear, but to cultivate the other part of yourself that is connected to all things. Because that part of it has no fear. Because there's nothing that can happen to it. It can't go anywhere. It's just changing its form all the time. I mean, as you die, your cells change, the energy changes, you turn into something else, you're all still part of the same thing you were part of. It's just the form changes. And when you recognize that, there's a something in you that balances that fear and makes it different. Because when you sit and look at a fear, you say, well, I can be afraid of physical something or I can be afraid of social, psychological things. And... Often, I, mean, I guess I've had life experiences, and I think most people have, where something you feared came to pass and you realize that what came to pass was much less debilitating than the fear of it in the first place. And you kind of keep profiting by that in some way so that you get so that you see that even as you're frightened, it's really just a trip your head is laying on you. I mean, this is really what meditative practice is about is learning how to extricate yourself from the web of thought forms that are creating your own suffering. Because the fear is a set of thought forms, is really what it is. It's a way of defining the non-definable in a way that creates an arising of a certain emotion in you. And as you keep learning how to extricate awareness from, th from thought, from identifying with thought, you begin to see them arise, exist, pass away. Ah, there's a fear, it comes and it goes. She's asking if, I, if there's benefit from going through one's fear. I think it's very important that one acknowledge one's fear, that one allow it to give it space. I think the acting out is not necessary. It's like anger. I don't think you have to go beat somebody up or beat a pillow or anything, but you have to acknowledge the fact that you're angry. And there are ways of allowing your humanity fully, which includes the fear, and I think that things like the sweat lodge are exquisite techniques for bringing that stuff to the surface. Because part of it is witnessing, noticing it, allowing it, giving it space, letting it be your humanity and letting it come and go. Sure, absolutely. Sir? Is the development of faith something that develops gradually or is it something through a direct transcendent experience like meeting my guru or acid or something like that? My suspicion is 
that it's, it's deeper in people's beings and that what happens is when they have a certain experience, they then get to the point where they can label it. But it's already there. Like a guy came to see me the other day. This is interesting. He came from the Midwest. He had written me a letter and I, there was something in the letter. Usually, I mean, who knows? I do all it intuitively. Some letters I answer, some friends answer, some I say, I got to see you, some I don't, I don't know. But he came to see me because he was in the area. And he came in and he said, I've never had any spiritual experiences, never had any transcendent experiences. He said, I, I always read about other people having them, but I've never had them. It was interesting. I mean, he was saying all that. At the same moment, there he was. I mean, what was that about? You know, I mean, it was just far out. And we just sat together just for a little while. And then he left. And the next week, he called me from the Midwest. He said, what happened? Because at the end, he said, is this all there is? I said, yeah, I guess it is. And he went away. And he called me a week later. He says, what's happening? He says, energy is shooting through my body. And I'm going into these altered states. And I'm seeing all this. And I think I'm going crazy. And what's going on? <laughs> I said, well, that'll teach you. <laughs> But he had in him such a deep something. He was so ripe, even though he didn't know what he had. I mean, he had the jewel right in his hand. He just didn't know he had it. You know? So I have a feeling that the nature of the consciousness of the awakening experience isn't quite the right thrust of the thing. I think there is a, a kind of a readiness in human beings to hear something or to be ripe that it doesn't require being hit over the head with a guru or something. I mean, there's all those, you know, japanese type things where a leaf falls and the person gets enlightened, stuff like that. I think when you're ready, it can be anything. Really, it can be, you know, lousy cooking that can do it, you know? I mean, and when you're not ready, I'll tell you, none of it works. Uh, sir. What would I say to somebody that's about to graduate from a university about job or career? I'd say that there are um, a number of levels at which we live our life. And one of the levels is what brought you here tonight, which is something to do with your own inner work and your own inner awakening. And that journey is going to go on throughout your whole life. And it's going to go on using whatever it is you do with your life. Okay? So I would say treat it lightly. And don't even demand, there was a great story of Mahatma Gandhi, who I've told this many stories, he was leading a march of many people, a protest march, and after, he, he stopped the march after about a week. And his lieutenant said, Mahatmaji, you can't do that. There are people that have left their work, left their homes to follow you, you can't just stop. And he must have seen something about impending violence or something. And he said, you know, he said, God knows absolute, God is absolute truth. I'm a human, I only know relative truth. My understanding of truth changes from day to day. My commitment must be to truth, not to consistency. You know, I mean, I think about my life, there is no way now that I could have predicted who I turned out to be or what business I'm in, whatever it is, you know? 
In fact, who I was then would have hospitalized who I am now. That's how bizarre it is, you know? <laughs> uh, he said that uh, when he falls in love, when one falls in love, he, said, he started to depersonalize it, then he decided to make it personal. When he said, when I fall in love, I feel very vulnerable. And he said, what do you do about that? Right? Yeah. I think you thank your lucky stars that you can feel that vulnerable and that it can shake the hell out of you. And that you can't afford not to fall in love continually over and over again. And the art form ultimately is to fall in love with everybody you meet. And this is the most bizarre predicament because the models we have of love are based on deficit, they're deficit models. They're the idea that there's not enough love, so when you get it, you're really lucky and you should hold tight to it and possess it and collect it and gather it. You know, and you feel it with somebody and you say, where will you be Thursday night and Friday night and let's nest together and, and you're very frightened that they'll leave you because you're, you're like an addict with your connection because you're addicted to being in love and you only know how to do it through that person. So of course you're feeling vulnerable, just like any junkie would feel around there, that their connection may move to Detroit, you know? So you're feeling this incredible, I know you think I'm being facetious, but uh, look at it, because it's an interesting one. So you get really in pain about it, you're frightened. Now, as your spiritual work goes on and on, what happens is, that as you open more, you begin to see that, you begin to have that experience with more people. You go to the store to get some tofu and beer and at the checkout counter, you look into the eyes of somebody and there it is again. And you say, have you considered a menage a trois? And, but what are you gonna do then? What about the next one and the next one and the next one? You can't start an atomite community and pretty soon, it's so complicated, you're spending all your time balancing all your different lovers until politically and economically it's impossible. What has to give up, not that you stop loving people, but you stop collecting your beloved till you can get so that you look at somebody and you love them so much and there's nothing to do about it. And it's quite a leap to get to the point where you love people and you don't collect them because you're not working out of a deprivation model because you're gonna love the next one too and the next one and you're always with your beloved because that's all there is. All you are is God in drag. There's only one of it and I, I mean, it's constantly meeting the beloved over and over again in all these incredible different forms. It's like central casting and you go to the costume place. So when I find somebody I don't love, it's like my guru came in drag saying, I bet you can't get me this time, see? Because I've got a costume so good, it's closing your heart. And then I say, no, you're not gonna get me. I know you're not Casper Weinberg. You're really my guru in drag, see? And I, <laughs> that's an old routine. I just, it's so, such fun, I have to do it now and then. It hurts like hell and it's scary and you just can't afford not to do it. Yes, go ahead. You're asking about a universal healing crisis. Are you talking about the level of uh, immune systems or are you talking about the level of ecology or all of it? Well, that's what I've been talking about all evening, really. You know, I mean, what I've said is 
that the way in which you enter into that whole process is be, be, by becoming the healing thing itself so that you're not doing healing, you are the healing. That's a different level. Not that you are loving, but you are love. And it's, it's a way you rest in it. The, I, I, that, the book I did, How Can I Help, talks about the trap of getting into doing, getting identified with being the actor, the doer. And this is the whole teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. Do not identify with being the actor. That hell healing comes through you. And it comes through you because you are connected to the source. And the source heals itself. Rather than I'm healing you or I'm healing the world. And it, it, it's so it's a way in which you die into the process of becoming that which heals. And that's the only way I know how to do that. Sir, he wants to know about the um, ego development in the formative years in its relation to higher spiritual practices. Is that the question? The cute way I say it is, you've got to become somebody to become nobody. That you've got to develop an ego structure in order to be able to keep your ground on this plane to honor your incarnation properly before you can do the kind of real work inside that allows you to transcend those structures. Because if you transcend when you're sort of half cooked in terms of your ego development, it's really you start to lose your ground and you start to float and you don't have a stable base from which to work until you don't need it anymore. So that I often, like when young kids come and ask me about taking drugs, I'm often inclined to say, don't screw up, you're becoming somebody too soon. Better you become somebody with a economic, social, sexual, political base structure so you have something to keep playing against until you don't need it anymore. Okay? So I see ego development as necessary in incarnation. The ones that don't do it are blue babies and they just drop out early on. You know, they just say, I'm not going to play at all. But other than that, people have to develop it. The only thing that's interesting, and this is what's come to me post-psychology, in a way, of my own traditional psychology, is that if you are, if you learn ego structure from someone who themselves is not caught in their own ego structure. The way in which you learn your ego structure has much more space in it and it's much easier for you to let it go and to turn it into a functional unit rather than a total identity. Is that, is that coming through what I'm trying to say to you? So they say, a fortunate person is born into a family of yogis is what they say in the Eastern literature, okay? who teaches you to be somebody but not to get too lost in it because they're not seeing you. I mean, my parents really thought I was Richard. They really thought it was real. And they created a reality for that that had no space in it. And the moments when my mother and I or my father and I transcended that together were minuscule compared to the moments when we were stuck in our roles together. And later, when I got out of it, then I could go back and be with them in a way that we could make that figure ground reversal. But up until then, it was all real. And that made it more difficult to get out of it, if you will. I mean, it's perfect karma, but it was still... Is that dealing with your question? 
an interesting one. Yes. Uh, she's talking about... <coughs> it's going. She's talking about the experience of... Um, uh, of the breaking heart because you open up to somebody and then they hurt you or they disappear or something happens and you're broken. And she said that as a result of having many experiences like that, she's built up an armoring so that she doesn't let people in that close. Does that? Well, first, on, a, on, a, on an intellectual and metaphysical level, I could share with you, I mean, you and I could share the understanding that you can hardly afford the place you're sitting in because it's turning you off to life. And you end up, it's like being the living dead in a way. You're alive, but you're not fully alive because you can't risk it. And I mean, most people are in that most of the time. It's not anything unique to you or, you know. And uh, so the metaphysical, the understanding that that is your predicament, that you don't, that it's not a desirable predicament, that you would like to change it, that's the first part of it. I do a lot of what in Buddhism is called metta meditation, which is meditation of loving kindness, in which I uh, send, I uh, go into my heart and I breathe in and out of my heart and I send out, thank you, and I send out um, love to other beings. And I keep practicing this process. I mean, I can do it long, long periods of time. And sometimes I bring to mind people that my heart's closed to. And I just bring to them, I surround them with light and with love. Sometimes I do it for all beings. And it's a traditional meditation in which I say, um, well, we'll do it together just for a minute. It'll be, it's fun. I mean, this is just a practice, but you're asking how you do it. You do it just by starting to generally feel the love towards all beings without demanding that it be a psychosocial, a psychological intimacy thing. And then you begin to feel that deeper, that other kind of love. And then as you're opening to that, some situations karmically are ones that you have different work to do with. Some people you just, this. Some people you just think of in the abstract. Some people you're gonna make a home with. Some people, and when you start to get the more spacious quality of love going, it can withstand the buffeting of the broken heart more. I mean, what I'm trying to say to you is that my heart breaks again and again and again and again. I mean, if I were immune to the amount of suffering I mean, I've had to learn how to keep my heart open in hell, really. Because when you're doing a service work in Nepal or Guatemala or something, the stuff is so thick, the pain, and the people are so beautiful. I mean, it's just going to rip you to shreds all the time. Let alone people you love dying or turning or getting angry or whatever. It's all the stuff. And the cultivation of the other quality of love is what gives it balance. That's all I can say. Let's just do that for a moment because it's a lovely meditation. And it's called Metta, a loving kindness meditation. And it's a nice place for us to complete the evening, actually. So bring your awareness to the center of your chest. And 
maybe you feel a little warmth there or not. And then experience as if you're breathing in and out of the middle of the chest. I mean, even though you're breathing through your nostrils or your mouth, just imagine that it's going in and out of through the middle of your chest. There's a source centered right in the middle of your chest. Now imagine that surrounding you, surrounding all of us here, surrounding you are all our beings, are many, many, many beings. They're like in concentric circles, stretching right out from the middle of your being, as far as the mind can imagine. There are beings that are living, there are beings that are dead, there are beings that are beautiful, there are beings that do, that do acts that hurt people. There are beings from other planes. And appreciate the fact that in most of those beings, their mind is caught in some way and there is suffering. So you're at the center of these concentric circles in all directions, up, down, around. You're the, begin the center of a circle. It goes in all directions of infinite numbers of beings. And as you breathe out from the middle of your chest, what you're sending is the presence of light, presence of um, the presence. You're, you're sharing presence with all these beings. You're going out and touching each one of these beings with your mind and your heart. And there are um, some thoughts that you can use that help this process. And I'll say one of the lines, there are four of them, and I'll say one, and then if it feels right, we'll all repeat it together. So get that going from the middle of your chest outward, touching all beings. Imagine it touching all beings, this light that's coming from you, a quality of peace quality of equanimity, shared presence, love. The first one is, may all beings everywhere be free from suffering. Together. May all beings everywhere be free from suffering. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be happy. May all beings everywhere be peaceful.
all beings everywhere be peaceful. May all beings everywhere be free. All beings everywhere be free. And as this practice deepens and you recognize that you are one of the beings in that circle as well as the heart that is sending that light forth, you enter more and more deeply into the universe of compassion. And in that universe, the heart is freed to love as it must love. Let us share just a sound together, maybe three breaths worth. Take it in any key you want. Sometimes it's called Om, but you do it any way you'd like. Let it really arise out of the feeling of the unitive nature of us together and the grace we're feeling to being together. when we meet in part we say namaste which means I honor the place in you where when you're resting in yours and I'm resting in mine there's only one of us thank you again for joining me this evening namaste this podcast is brought to you by the love serve remember foundation and ramdas.org We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.